This podcast is sponsored in part by Fiverr. Click the link in the show notes. And if you purchase anything from Fiverr, you're helping not only this podcast, you're helping to spread the gospel all around the world. You're helping to stop the slave trade and human trafficking. And you're helping the persecuted church. Fiverr's an online marketplace for freelance services. Fiverr, it starts here. By the Fire Podcast presents The Heart Speaks. Written and performed by Dave Smale. Chapter 3 Nothing made sense. The world was upside down. Hundreds of times a day, he relived every minute detail. The timeline of events. The events themselves. The names of anyone even remotely involved. He mulled them over, desperately searching for a hole, an inconsistency. He was a detective, after all. Shouldn't he be able to figure this out? Jella was discovered in a field at just after 10 a.m., after an anonymous 911 call. The medical examiner placed the time of death at about midnight. Police department policy prohibited Tyrone from investigating his daughter's case. He wasn't allowed to review the case file or talk to the assigned detectives. He wasn't even allowed to speak to Officer Holloman, the cop who'd found Jella's body, nor the 911 dispatcher. On his behalf, Jerry had done some unauthorized snooping and garnered some info. The anonymous 911 call came from a homeless person. But who that person was, how they'd made the call, and from where, he didn't know and probably never would. Jerry learned that the investigation had revealed no sign of forced entry, no sign of struggle, no foreign fingerprints, no footprints, not even a breadcrumb. There was scant evidence that a ladder may have been used, but that was no surprise since Jella had been abducted out of a second-story bedroom. The problem was, ladders don't usually leave traceable prints. Even if they did, there was no national criminal database of ladders the police or FBI could search. The case now rested with two homicide detectives. Cole and Channing were their names, affectionately referred to as C&C. Their reputation preceded them as the best detective team Virginia Beach had to offer. Tyrone didn't doubt their skills, but it killed him to not be able to apply his own nose to the trail. As part of the investigation, Detective Channing had interviewed him. Cole didn't seem to be as involved. Channing also interviewed Keisha and Deborah, Zizi's mother. Deborah hadn't been much help. Keisha had been uncooperative, lashing out at the detective for wasting time questioning her when a killer was on the loose. Jerry informed Tyrone that, thanks to her behavior, Keisha was listed as a person of interest, albeit not one they were actively pursuing. Deborah's boyfriend, Cron, was also questioned. He was an ex-con, which Tyrone figured based on how he'd acted when they'd encountered him. And Cron wasn't his real name. Ladorian Leverett Washington was. 
Kron was likely a gang or prison nickname. The man had done time in local jails and state prison in both Virginia and Maryland. He also had children from at least two women in each state and a lengthy rap sheet with charges from petty larceny to drug possession to shoplifting to unpaid child support. But not murder. Not even assault. Perhaps he'd simply never been caught, Tyrone thought. Kron passed a polygraph, but tested positive for marijuana. Still, Kron was so adamant about his innocence, he'd refused to hire a lawyer. Evidently, there was no need to. He was never considered a person of interest, and, to date, no charges had been filed against him. With no other leads, the murder case of 10-year-old Evangela Jella Tykesha Bowman threatened to go cold very soon. Kron's hooded image wouldn't leave Tyrone's mind. The man's I-don't-care-your-daughter-is-missing-even-though-it's-my-fault attitude was the most repulsive thing Tyrone had ever come across. A man like Kron was completely useless to society, in Tyrone's opinion. According to Jerry, Kron had no job and no ambition, aside from petty crime. He was abusing the public welfare system, receiving money in the form of unemployment, disability, Medicaid, and an EBT card. He lived rent-free in the house of Deborah, Zizi's mother, taking full advantage of her house, refrigerator, cable, Wi-Fi, and bedroom, while contributing nothing but cigarette and marijuana smoke damage. Every time he molded over, Tyrone arrived at the same conclusion. Kron was guilty. But how? What was the connection? He didn't know. Tyrone wanted to strangle the man. But deep down he knew. Kron may be a petty criminal and an irresponsible deadbeat. He wasn't a murderer. In the end, did it matter? Evangela, his little girl, his little germ, with an infectious smile and a contagious laugh, his bright shining star, who loved horses and drew wonderful pictures of them, was gone. Did it really matter who or what took her from the world? Did it matter that she hadn't been hit by a car, or contracted a deadly disease, or fallen off a swing at the playground? Did it really matter that she was strangled and disposed of in a field like a piece of litter? Yes. Yes, it did. It did to him. His one and only child now lived in his dreams. Every time he fell asleep, he saw her. His mind replayed the last time they were together, over and over. It was a seemingly meaningless interaction. He'd come home from work and she was leaving for her friend's house. Tyrone had plopped down on the couch in front of the TV, his mind still unwinding from the day's caseload. Jella had come to give him a hug and kiss goodbye. Where are you going? he said. To Zizi's house for a sleepover, Jella said. Oh yeah? Have fun. She wrapped her arms around him and gave him a kiss on the cheek. He returned the hug half-heartedly and didn't give her a kiss. Bye, Daddy. Love you, she said, practically skipping out the door. You too, little germ, he muttered while picking up the remote. That was how the interaction went, though many times, in his dreams, he'd returned the hug wholeheartedly and gave her a kiss and made it a point to say, I love you too. Sometimes, 
He'd try and convince her to stay home instead of going to Zizi's. But I promise her, Daddy. She's waiting for me, Jella would say before frolicking away. No, he'd call after her. No, someone else is waiting for you. Stop. And then he'd wake up, hollering, weeping, sweating, or all three. Why couldn't their last meeting have been something special, something sentimental, something memorable? The answer, in his mind, was because of him. He'd made it mundane and meaningless. He could have hugged her back, but he didn't. He could have given her a kiss goodbye, but he didn't. He could have said, I love you too, rather than you too, but he hadn't. He could have paid more attention to her while she was alive, but it was too late. All he could do now was seek justice. So yes, it mattered to him. Just like every single moment he'd taken for granted while she was alive now mattered. Everything mattered to him. But not to her. Not to Keisha. She refused to talk about Jella. In fact, she'd withdrawn completely. Keisha wouldn't speak to family, friends, or co-workers. It had been two weeks since Jella was found in that field. Tyrone had returned to work a day ago. Keisha hadn't. She stayed in bed all day, refusing to speak, eat, or drink. Or so she led Tyrone to believe. He'd come home to find glasses and plates he hadn't used in the dishwasher. It was a good sign. Good and bad. Though it meant she was getting nourishment, it also meant she was bottling up her emotions and keeping things from him. He wondered how long before real bottles showed up. Ones filled with alcohol, painkillers, or psychotropic drugs, or all three. Grief counseling had been made available through the police department. Tyrone had accepted. Keisha refused. Against his better judgment, Tyrone attended counseling sessions with the department's psychologist alone. It helped a little, he admitted, but the only thing keeping his mind off Jella was exercise. His trips to the gym were longer and more frequent now. Sometimes he went twice a day. On a particularly rough day, he went three times. When he realized that he couldn't do enough reps or lift weights heavy enough to make the pain stop, Tyrone decided to return to work. After all, criminals didn't take a break simply because Detective Bowman had been through the worst tragedy of his life. Tyrone figured the church which Keisha and Jella had been attending for several years would also offer grief counseling. Not so. Despite the enormous stadium-like structure in which they held their 10,000-member services, the 26 pastors and more than 250 deacons, elders, administrators, and apostles on staff, somehow grief counseling wasn't offered. Neither were funerals. Weddings? Yes. Expensive prosperity and empowerment conferences? Absolutely. But old, dusty inner-city churches handled funerals. Not new, flashy, bling-bling megachurches. Worse yet, they claimed that even if they did do funerals, they would only do it for a registered member. They had a record of Evangela Bowman, her name appearing on the children's Sunday school roster. But Keisha's name didn't appear anywhere in their records. Tyrone cursed them for liars. Instead, the funeral home had arranged for a pastor 
they'd never met, from some tiny local church he'd never heard of, to conduct Jella's eulogy. The pastor had done a good job, but the whole ordeal upset Tyrone so much, he vowed never to set foot in a church again, unless he was there to arrest a congregant or the preacher. Jerry, in his own way, had offered some assistance, showing up at his house randomly with donuts, even though he knew Tyrone wouldn't eat them. Still, Tyrone thought it was as nice a gesture as his partner could muster. He was certain Keisha had eaten a few of the donuts. The maple bars would mysteriously disappear from the assortment. In Tyrone's line of work, he'd seen it all. Tragedies like what befell his family were not uncommon. Children were murdered nearly every day, especially in big cities. Virginia Beach may have not been a big city in terms of population, at least not on par with New York, L.A., or Chicago, but at more than 450,000 people, it was the most populous city in Virginia. In fact, it had more people than St. Louis, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and New Orleans, yet no NFL team. When grouped with its neighboring cities, Norfolk, Chesapeake, Hampton, Portsmouth, Newport News, and Suffolk, collectively known as Hampton Roads, or the Seven Cities, the region was teeming with over a million people, and, by extension, teeming with crime. Tyrone checked his watch. 4.34 a.m. Time to go. In the light of his digital alarm clock, he kissed Keisha's sleeping face before leaving for the gym. It was something he'd always done, even prior to the murder. She used to wake up and at least say goodbye. But not anymore. Keisha didn't budge, only breathed. He couldn't tell whether she was asleep or just despondent. He shut the front door, expecting another reporter to appear on his driveway and pester him for a statement. Except for the most obvious tragedy, the murder of his daughter, the media had been the worst part, worse even than his wife's withdrawal from the world. Once word had reached the media's ears that a cop's daughter had been brutally murdered, they'd shown no compassion. Despite a tearful press conference in which Tyrone asked for understanding and privacy and an official press release from the police department, reporters hounded him with phone calls and in-person interview requests. And by in-person, they meant approaching him at the grocery store or at his mailbox, demanding an on-the-spot interview while shoving a live mic in his face. Now he knew what the term media vultures meant. As he stepped out on the driveway, he wasn't accosted. No reporters today. Good. He arrived at police HQ an hour and a half later, legs burning from all the weighted squats, lunges, and calf raises. Today was his second day back since the incident. Walking to his desk was surreal. He felt every cop's eyeballs on him. Virtually everyone had said something to the effect of, I'm so sorry for your loss, or your family is in our thoughts. The sentiment was appreciated, but it got old after the 140th time. Tyrone entered the row of desks where the detectives lived. Several were already typing away, researching or writing reports, including Channing and Cole. Jerry was reading a case file, sipping on his ancient coffee mug. Seeing the C&C &C team made his heart sink. 
How desperately he wanted to question them, find out how things were going, offer his help. Seeing Jerry raised his spirits, but seeing Jerry's mug turned his stomach. Jerry had evidently been using it longer than he'd been with the department. The faded U.S. Navy Chief Petty Officer anchors emblazoned on the side, the mug, according to Jerry, had never been washed. He explained that this was a naval tradition among its senior enlisted members. Two rules govern this mug, Greeny, Tyrone remembered him saying. First, when you get your first chief's mug, you keep it forever and only use it for coffee for the rest of your life. Second, you never wash a Navy mug. Ever. Tyrone thought it was more like a disgusting superstition, not unlike baseball players who never change their socks or football players who don't wash their lucky jock straps. Greeny, good morning, Jerry called before taking another sip. Hey, Tyrone managed. What we got? Ah, uh, you know, Jerry said, holding the mug aloft. Coffee almost as good as on my first ship. Tyrone's face said it all. Ew. I meant cases, man. Anything new? Tyrone said. The usual assortment of delightful treats. Let's see, Jerry said, moving a stack of case files in front of him. He flipped through them, summarizing each as he did. Missing person, another missing person, body found in an abandoned building, or my personal favorite, a home invasion with the suspect shot by the homeowner's mistress. I mean, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. What do you want first, the salad bar, or do you go straight for the roast beef and mashed potatoes? Tyrone shook his head. He used to think Jerry's sense of humor was refreshing. Not at the moment. I don't know. Missing person, I guess, Tyrone said. Which one? We got a 27-year-old male and... Jerry shuffled the files. A 14-year-old girl. Don't matter. The girl, Tyrone said, shrugging. Going for the salad bar, eh? Jerry said, nodding. He opened the file and reviewed the main points of the case aloud. Sophia Marie Chase, 14. Last seen leaving a house party a block from her residence. Reported missing by her mother after not coming out of her room for a whole day. The girl apparently snuck out of a window, hopped her backyard fence, ran through a neighbor's yard, and then to the party. Several party-goers were questioned, all saying the same thing. She was there for about two hours, smoked some weed, got drunk, then left to walk back home around 2 a.m. Okay, any leads? Tyrone asked, knowing that Jerry had been working alone since he'd been gone. Nope, none, Jerry replied. Anything stick out at you? Tyrone asked. Nope, all consistent far as I could tell. Only thing missing is the victim. I could use a young set of eyes, maybe some green ones, Jerry said, referring not only to his nickname for Tyrone, but also Tyrone's eye color. I... Can I see the witness statements? Tyrone asked with a chuckle. Sure. You do that while I tend to real important things like getting a refill, Jerry said as he slid the folder to Tyrone, then threw back the last swig of his coffee. Want me to wash that thing for you? Tyrone asked, knowing the answer already. Jerry performed an exaggerated gasp. He held up the empty mug and tilted it sideways so Tyrone could see the blackened interior. 
It looked like the inside of an old chimney. What, this guy? You kidding, Greeny? That's thirty years of gold in there, Jerry said. Tyrone shook his head in disgust. Jerry laughed and walked to the coffee maker. Skimming through the witness statements, Tyrone didn't notice anything unusual at first. They were, as Jerry said, consistent in their content. But something nagged him. A piece that didn't fit. Tyrone flipped through the statements again. On the second pass, his eye caught something. The word, stepfather. It was in the missing girl's mother's statement. He read the mother's statement carefully. It said the girl's stepfather first suggested that she'd ran away, prompting the mother to force the girl's bedroom door open. Yet Tyrone hadn't seen a statement from anyone identifying themselves as the victim's stepfather, only her friends and the girl's mother. Jerry returned, taking a swig of black coffee, which he swished through his teeth before swallowing. Tyrone gagged momentarily, then mentioned what he'd found. No statement from the stepdad. Well, you're right. Good catch, Greeny, said Jerry. See, told you I needed a fresh set of eyes. Well, I guess I know where we're headed first. I'll go let the LT know. Thanks for listening to The Heart Speaks. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'll be back next week with another chapter. Until then, God bless and thank you. This is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental.